Hi, this is director Brenna Corner, and welcome to Carmen. Welcome to Vancouver Opera Offstage. I'm your host, Les Dalla, chorus director and associate conductor at Vancouver Opera. Join me for this podcast as we connect with opera experts, artists, staff, and others to explore the world of opera on and off the stage. We are honored to share our stories on the unceded homelands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Welcome to another special episode of Vancouver Opera Offstage and the preview podcast for Vancouver Opera's Carmen, Up Close and Personal, which premieres online Saturday, May 1st. Tickets are now available at digital.vancouveropera.ca. We're very proud to welcome my friend and colleague, Brenna Corner, director of Carmen, Up Close and Personal. As we're recording this episode, it is March 11th, and Brenna is speaking with me from her home in Alberta. Brenna, I understand you're just finishing up a quarantine period, and you'll be joining us in a few days to begin work and rehearsals on our original adaptation of Bizet's Opera. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. It's great to be able to chat with you. And I still look forward to you being in the room and starting up next week on rehearsals for this Carmen that we're doing. How have you been doing? How has your life changed since COVID hit? Ah, what a year. Well, you know, like everybody, it has been a developing year. I mean, I was actually, I was really fortunate. Many of my contracts didn't actually get canceled. You know, they got pivoted to other things, but I was supposed to make my debut on the main stage with Glimmerglass last summer, directing a production of Don Giovanni that we've been working on for, oh, you know, like almost three years. And of course, you know, that got canceled, but I was really fortunate. I actually just finished in Seattle. They were originally supposed to be co-producers of this production with Glimmerglass. And so we were supposed to do it in January. And they decided that while we weren't going to do the original production, we were at least going to do something. So I actually just finished in Seattle making a movie, a black and white sort of film noir-esque, meta-theater-esque version of John Giovanni. And that was a lot of fun, actually. Really enjoying discovering cinema in opera. That's been kind of a wild ride, but it's really been interesting. Wow. And I know that some of our listeners are very familiar with Daniel Coolidge. And of course, he was supposed to be your original Don Giovanni in this. But I understand that through some strange occurrence, he tested false positive for COVID during the rehearsal period or just before the rehearsal period. And that unfortunately, due to his schedule and everything else, it took him out of the project. Did I get that right? Yeah, it was just some really unfortunate timing. It happened right in the middle of our rehearsal period and you know everyone had to go back into quarantine to make sure everybody was safe which is great you know that's what you want you want companies to be you know prioritizing safety but it did sort of mean that when we finally got out of quarantine it was definitely a very big push to get it all done right yikes as you have said before this joys of making opera or art in times of covid have all kinds of extra joys it's just extra joys, joys all oh the yeah time, i love right? your optimism that's fantastic <laughs> indeed I mean, sometimes you sort of get this thing and you're like i don't know what to do with it and you end up you know really actually making something super interesting and super cool because you you know really had to rearrange your priorities or what was going to happen or where things were going to go. And it does sort of nudge your creativity sometimes, those constraints. At least that's how I'm trying to look at it anyways. 
That's awesome, actually. <laughs> it's very important to remain optimistic and positive, for sure. I mean, it's been literally a year since everything yeah. has shut down. And uh, it's, I mean, we're very fortunate to be able to be doing what we're doing, especially this upcoming project. So for sure, we're luckier than many. So it is mm. important to remember that for sure. I believe you began your relationship with Vancouver Opera during the 2014-2015 season as a member of the Yolanda M. Ferris program as stage director. And during that season, Carmen was the first show directed by Joel Ivany, which he would have assisted on. Yeah. And Stick Boy was yep. that season. What else did we do? We did Flater Mouse and the Sweeney Todd that season. And the Sweeney Todd, that's right. And then you came back a year later in 2016 to direct. You were at the helm of this one, that incredible production of Hansel and Gretel with the Old Trout Puppet Theatre Company, mm-hmm. which I believe you just also directed in San Diego, didn't you? Just before COVID hit. Yeah, it was it was the last sort of full show I, I directed before we all went into lockdown was getting to remount that show and getting to hang out with the old trouts and uh, rediscover and recreate that sort of magical world of Hansel and Gretel in San Diego. It was pretty fabulous. Had I known it was going to be the last time I got to direct in a room with singers where I could see all of their faces all the time because they weren't wearing masks. Right. I feel like I would have worked harder to enjoy that experience. <laughs> it's so true what they say. Appreciate the moment, live in the right? moment because you never know what's coming up. But exactly. yeah, true. Exactly. Wow. And then, of course, you were back in January of 2018 to direct that really wonderful production of L'Elysir d'Amour which again Vincent reminded us uh, about the wonderful ice cream truck. I'm not sure if Donatetti would have imagined that, but there it was. Yeah. But that was really a delightful, beautifully cast. Everything about that show was really quite lovely. Yeah, it was great production. It was originally James Robinson's production. I believe correctly it was a co-pro between the COC and Vancouver. I believe that is correct, yeah. Right. They sort of took what the James Robinson's production, which was initially very American in flavor, and they sort of Canadianized it. And I really loved that. That approach was, was just seemed like so much fun. We had a great time in that show. Yeah, yeah. That was a lot of fun. Brenna, I know you're also you're a singer, you're an actor. You've done many things. I know you have a company in Winnipeg as well, which I'd love to hear about. Tell us, how did you get into this world of opera and directing in the first place? Well, I always, I grew up in the theater. My parents both worked in theater when I was really young. um, And I just always sort of loved the idea of telling stories. My father used to say that it was like having Mary Poppins in the house, which I don't know if that's completely true, but I do have a recollection of singing and dancing all the time. So it just seemed natural, but I was originally just wanted to do musical theater. And I went to school for musical theater, and then I started falling in love with Shakespeare and classical theater, and I was really torn because, I mean, there are definitely people who can do both of those things, but, you know, it's rare that you get to do both unless you're doing Cole Porter's Kiss Me Kate or something like that. Right. So eventually someone was like, have you actually heard of opera? Because it's Shakespeare and musical theater at the same time. And I was like, I'm sorry, that's a thing. And uh, that was it. I was in love. Oh, wow. I love that. It's Shakespeare and musical theater at the same time. Yeah. I've never heard opera described as such, but that's kind of apropos. Right. It's the sort of dramatic, beautiful text and poetry of Shakespeare, but done with music like it is in musical theater. And that's when I was like, yep, I'm in, checks all the boxes, I'm so thrilled. So that's how I sort of got into opera. 
And then I actually started directing because I was in a car accident several years ago and ended up suffering a vocal paralysis where my voice became paralyzed. And so I was not able to sing. I was barely able to speak. You know, it took a couple of years to actually figure out if I was ever really be able to use my voice again. And during that time, I was like, I don't want to stop doing this. I, I love this art form so much. So how can I continue to participate? How can I continue to be a member of this sort of community? And because I had been to theater school and I'd worked as an actress, I started coaching friends, talking to them about characters. And then, you know, I would direct a few scenes here and there. And then I was, you know, directing an opera. And then I was assisting on big productions. And then I sort of became an opera director. Wow. I mean, you took obviously something really quite traumatic and tragic and turned it into something incredible. In all honesty, I'm a way better director than I was ever going to be a singer. So it's probably all for the best. <laughs> well, I'm sure you're being humble, but I mean, there are a lot of singers. I mean, there are a lot of directors, a lot of conductors, a lot of everything, but it's true when I think of the number of particularly sopranos and mezzos competing out there for so few roles and positions and things. I'm not sure all of them would be great directors, but you're definitely a great director. So <laughs> I guess you ended up probably where you belong if one also looks at things in that respect because you strike me as somebody who's always so positive about your work enthusiastic about working with people and you really bring a great energy to the room oh thanks i try well you never appear that you try so no matter what's going on inside you really do give such a great positive energy and i'm really thrilled that our young artists this year will have a chance to work with you very very soon and it's going to be on obviously one of the most iconic operas ever written but we are adapting that again a la covid times and everything to center all of the storytelling on the four principal characters carmen don jose escamillo and Michaela. and you and i've been working to come up with a plan for the way this is all being put together and i'm super excited with the vision of what you presented and how this means we're adapting the opera in terms of the storytelling and in terms of the music that we're using there's just so much great music and so we're really trimming it down but do you want to elaborate a little bit? Tell us what people can expect from this production. Again, a COVID production where everybody's got to be three meters apart. And, and I believe we're going to be filming it at the Orpheum. So there's, I guess, a couple of components, right, to this film that's going to be put together. I'm actually just like you. I'm really thrilled with what we've come up with. I think it's going to be kind of fabulous. But audiences, you know, they can definitely expect to see those pieces that are near and very dear to our hearts when it comes to Carmen. I think we've kept all the major toe-tapping ones that you're in love with, and even the toe-tapping ones that maybe aren't in love with. We kept all of those, so I'm really happy about that. I mean, from a sort of storytelling and visual aspect, one of the things that I'm sort of really interested in this stitching together of these pieces is the idea of fate. I've always actually found that to be a really interesting idea in Carmen, and it doesn't get tons of play in the first act. It does a little bit more in the second act, and of course, there's her very famous card aria where she reads her tarot in the third act. And so one of the things that I'm really interested in is really digging into that idea about fate and choice. In the aria itself, she talks about if this is what the cards say, then you have no choice. If the cards say death, that is it. If the cards say love, that is it. And I think that's a really interesting idea. So we're going to look at the whole movie that we're creating as an exploration of that, as a sort of version of her reading her own tarot 
And then at the end, making a choice about believing that that is going to be her fate or working to make it something else, which is, I think is also kind of, uh, for me at least, really exciting to not necessarily have to do a version of Carmen where she necessarily dies. Because I think in our modern world, sometimes it can be good to have just a slightly different way of thinking about those moments. Right. You know, you joined us on Zoom a couple of days ago for our first sort of gathering with a young artist. You talked about the fact that this really is a problematic piece from the point of view that in the original libretto of the opera and the way the story is told is that the person dies as the victim of basically domestic abuse. Yeah, it's exactly. And these days there are calls for not doing pieces like that. I mean, another classic piece in that world is Don Giovanni. I mean, it's really quite problematic yeah. from those points of view. I mean, how do you tackle that or handle that? Or what are some of the things that one should consider, which maybe people wouldn't have even thought of as being problematic, you know, 20, 30 years ago? Well, I think that's sort of the thing, because we're at this moment as a culture and as a society, we're really pushing ourselves to be at least aware of how different people can be impacted by different stories. It sort of puts the onus on us as creators to be very aware. And the thing is, I don't think you have to change the story necessarily. I mean, and quite frankly, if we were doing a full version of Carmen, right, we wouldn't change the story. I'm not suggesting that you do the whole, you know, three and a half hour opera and you don't, you don't have Carmen die at the end. But I do think that there are important things that you can think about in how you approach it. Can you make her more personal? Uh, you know, sometimes Carmen particularly, you know, she is a very tricky character. Because she can really just come off as sort of a sex symbol. But what Bizet wrote is so much more complex about that. Even just when you think about that act two duet between her and Don Jose that has his flower aria in the middle. The dramatic journey that those two characters go on in that sort of, what, 17 minute duet is extraordinary. And I think if we don't really mind and understand those moments, then by the time we get to the end, we run the risk of him being either justified in his behavior of her, which is just not acceptable to put on stage anymore, or she becomes this sort of weak character that we don't feel connected to. Whereas I think the reality is both of these characters are so troubled and neither of them really know how to like process their issues. And the more we can define those and talk about those through the story, the more I think that we as an audience can empathize and understand and see both sides of the story. And in there, we have the ability to make the story be something else than just about domestic abuse, where because of the way she's treated him the whole show, we slightly feel like it's okay that he killed her. That is not acceptable. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, definitely. Right. Wasn't there a production about a year or a couple of years ago where they changed the ending and Carmen actually killed Don Jose? Yeah, there was. It was in, I think it was, I want to say it was like in Italy or in France or Spain. And I mean, some people loved it. Many people hated it. And I think there's pros and cons to both. But what I love about what we're doing is since we're not doing the full story, we're not even trying to do the full story. We're doing the sort of pillars of the story that create the characters and their decisions. We're able to sort of more freely play with the ending. And that, I think, 
is the power of this idea of rearranging the story a little bit and changing the focus of the narrative. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's it's exciting to be able to look at, again, such a well-known piece, a beloved piece, an iconic piece, and explore it from a different angle. And in this case, with the four principal roles, I mean, obviously, there are choices that are determined uh, musically, for sure, about which aspects of the piece. But again, without giving away too much, because mm-hmm. anybody that wants to see this, if they haven't already subscribed or bought a single ticket, this is your chance. This will be a premiere of this version of the piece. So I am super excited about it. And very much looking forward to next week when we're all in the room together and exploring. Me too. So that'll be great. I know that after VO, the Yolanda Ferris program in particular, you went off, you've worked a lot in the US, I believe, right? You've been at Glimmerglass, mm-hmm. you've been at Atlanta Opera, Seattle, of course, you were just at. Tell us a little bit about how that all opened up. Well, actually, it sort of opened up because of Vancouver. I was at Vancouver Opera. I was working as the assistant director there, and I applied to Glimmerglass. And I don't know, some of your audience may remember that Loretta Bybee and Greer were our Mrs. Lovett and our Sweeney Todd, and they actually were going to Glimmerglass almost right after we finished Sweeney Todd in Vancouver. They were going to end up in Glimmerglass singing those same roles. And Loretta Bybee, she ended up calling Glimmerglass and saying, oh, you should really take this girl at Vancouver. You know, we just worked with her and she's really great. And so all of a sudden off I went to Glimmerglass. And while I was at Glimmerglass, Atlanta was looking for an assistant director. And Glimmerglass said, oh, hey, we've got this really great assistant director. You should come meet her. So they came up and met me and all of a sudden I was living in Atlanta and the director there. And then it just sort of spawned from there. I mean, in Atlanta, I worked with uh, Tomer Zulun, who's the general director for Atlanta Opera. We did a new production of Flying Dutchman there, which was really, really cool. But it was a co-pro between Cincinnati and Houston. So I actually ended up directing it in Cincinnati. And then I was associate director on it for Houston Grand Opera and got to make my Houston Grand Opera debut that way. So that was pretty cool. But yeah, that's sort of how that sort of happened was actually just because I was at VO and I was doing a good job and someone noticed and called someone else. And that was sort of just how the ball rolled on the super exciting. I just love stories like that because I'm trying to remember the famous quote, but it's when opportunity and chance and preparation combine that things like that happen. So yeah, I was a Boy Scout as a kid. The motto I think to this day is be prepared. And that's really great advice in life or anything. Obviously you were prepared. And especially in this career. (laughs) Is that ever true? And then not only be prepared, but be, especially these days, be as flexible as possible. (laughs) So you think you're doing one thing and you're prepared to do it, but then, okay, if the course changes, then be ready to go and adapt as quickly as possible. And Oh, that's great. I actually didn't know about the Houston Grand as well. Congrats. I mean, it's so well-deserved. That's fantastic. And I guess your calendar came to a crashing halt like everybody else's, but are some of the productions that you would have had coming up like this year, have they been postponed, that kind of thing? I mean, do you know what next year might be looking like if and when things get back to normal? I have a couple of things sort of on the horizon. There's a lot of things that are sort of possibilities, but with just how quickly COVID hit and how hard it hit so many of the arts organizations, I think a lot of arts leaders are just waiting just that little bit longer than maybe they normally would to make some decisions or pull some triggers on some things. You know, it's just you want to know if you'll be able to do it before you really start committing to things, right? So Yeah, absolutely. Some promising things in the future, but nothing totally lined up yet. 
I can relate. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, it sounds like you've got a lot of irons in the fire, which is awesome. And it's true. It's the way the career works. If you have a success somewhere and somebody connected to that can recommend you, a lot of doors can open up very quickly if things are lined up nicely. So I'm just so pleased that that's all happening for you. May I ask, who are some of the people in this world, your mentors, others who have influenced you the most? Well, I would have to say when I was sort of going through my struggles of losing my voice and sort of discovering my directing chops, as it were, I ended up volunteering actually as an assistant director for a couple shows with Calgary Opera because that's where my family lives. And I ended up getting to work with Kelly Robinson and Michael Cavanaugh. And those two gentlemen taught me so much about what directing is and how to direct and how to break things down. That, I mean, they're in different ways, but both of them have always sort of very much been in my head, the sort of people who taught me how to do this. I mean, of course, you know, I had an incredible acting teacher when I was in theater and she ended up directing me and I learned tons from her, but it was just, it's always a bit different when you switch over to opera. So those two gentlemen for sure. And then of course, Francesca Zambello, who is the general and artistic director of Glimmerglass and the artistic director of Washington National. And Glimmerglass has sort of become, feels a bit like a second home to me. Last summer was the first summer I hadn't been there in five years, and it was a bit crazy to not get to go there. But Francesca really is such a role model to see her work in the room, to see how she can sort of understand the music and the drama and the acting in such an extraordinary way. I'll never forget being her assistant and sitting beside her and you know, we had just watched the scene and the actors were doing very well, but there was something that just didn't quite feel right. And I couldn't totally figure out what it was. And I was thinking, oh, it would probably take me like 15 minutes to like talk to them and discover what is going on or that thing that doesn't quite feel like it's landing yet. And Francesca said about three words and they started the scene and it was instantly fixed. It was the most amazing thing to watch. No kidding, eh? (laughs) Yeah. We were thinking that's okay. That's what I want to be when I grow up. I want to know how to do that. I want to know how to be that sort of clear and concise and understanding of the art, you know? So I would definitely say I've been very lucky to have some extraordinary mentors. So many of all of the directors I've gotten to assist in my career have really shaped me because when you're someone's assistant, you learn so much from them from just like watching what they do or trying to like figure out what their brain is processing or seeing or not seeing. And that is a really extraordinary thing. You just learn so much more. And, you know, as a director, there's one skill set, but then there's a different skill set to being an assistant that aren't always the same. So I'm very fortunate to have worked with extraordinarily talented directors of production or stage management team. I mean, the stage management team at Vancouver is amazing. I learned so much about how to use time, how to organize a room, how to make sure that you can just get a whole show done, you know, from the amazing stage managers at VO. I feel very fortunate because I think I've had so many mentors. No, it's great. You're so right. I mean, I've been an assistant conductor to many people as well. And it's true. You learn something from everyone. I mean, everyone has their way of working and of accomplishing the goal that, you know, they've set out. And actually, I find it just endlessly fascinating how people with quite different personalities, quite different approaches can really accomplish things in very similar ways or sometimes very contrasting ways. It's endlessly fascinating to me. And what you say is true. You know, if one is conducting and you're up in front of a group, 
generally, the less you say, the better. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that out because one thinks, oh, this is a moment, you know, one can say something inspiring or something, but it's true when somebody can, in just three words, say something that completely changes the room, that is really where it's at. And yeah. I have experienced that. Life goals. Yeah, life goals, exactly. <laughs> it's good to have things to aspire to. I'm still definitely <laughs> working on that. But again, every situation is different. And I, it's nice that, you, of course, Kelly and Michael have both directed a lot in Vancouver over the years, and I find them both a pleasure to work with. And again, it, like you said, you know, I learned so much from them as well all the time. It is what's so great about opera, getting back to that earlier comment. It's like Shakespeare and music theater in, <laughs> in the same way. It's true, right? Because, I mean, yeah. you bring together different disciplines and focuses and things, and then we all get to play together and in that sandbox. I really believe it's the greatest sandbox in the world. So how lucky are we? So I have this thing that I talk to young singers about, particularly when we're working on arias is that it's unlike a monologue. An aria is magical because you are not alone. It is always a duet between you and 20 to 60 of your nearest dearest in the pit. You know what I mean? Like they are the ones that are helping, that are creating, that are telling us about the world or the subtext or your thoughts. And so it's like the wonderful thing about opera is that it is always this sort of conversation and this sort of dialogue between the singer and the orchestra or the orchestra and the lights and the set. It's never just one thing. And I think that is one of the magical things that opera does. That is certainly true. I've never thought of it that way. That course, in Aria, it's never a monologue, even when the person is alone in the room. That's a very good way of putting it. And of course, the orchestra is often the subtext or supporting the emotion. I mean, the layers can be very different and numerous or sometimes more of a one-dimensional kind of thing. but. It's true that the music is always there, so it does add another dimension. What are some of the operas on your bucket list moving forward once we're all back producing for live audiences, or even if not, if it means more films? What are some of the pieces that really intrigue you that you're dying to get your hands on? Uh, well, as a deep lover of Shakespeare, I would love to one day get to work on Britain's Midsummer Night's Dream. That's certainly a great one. I had the pleasure of conducting that out at UBC, I think coming up to five years ago. And it's true. That is, it's one of those pieces I find though, that people who know it and who have done it will say, oh yeah, that's in my top 10. Without a doubt, both of my kids were in it. They were the little fairies. And what surprised me, we even opened, it was in June on Midsummer Nights. We ran four shows, double cast and you know, the orchestration of that piece is just a miracle as well, everything about it. But I remember standing outside because it was hot, it was June, out at the campus and during the intermission. And I thought, wow, there's a lot of people leaving. What, do they hate this piece or something? And I mused on this afterwards that the first time I saw a production of that was actually in Rome, my first time in Italy. And I was going to the Cosi program to conduct Suor Angelica back in 2012. And a few friends were in this production. So I wrote them and said, I'm coming and let's hang out after. And it was the second performance. So the first performance was a gala, which was apparently sort of for royalty and VIPs only. And so this was the first kind of public one. And it really wasn't that well sold. I got a cheapo ticket up on the third tier. And at the first intermission, I thought, well, I'm going to sneak down a bit because there's not full at all. And nobody bothered me. And then after the second intermission, I went up to like, I don't know, the 15th row or something. And literally, if the house was half to two thirds full at the beginning, there were about a third of those people left at the end. 
And one of the singers in the show afterwards had been there the previous year singing Musetta in Bohem. And she said, oh my God, you know, that run of 12 performances was sold out. You couldn't get a ticket. She goes, I don't think the Italians love Britain as much as uh, English-speaking people. (laughs) And I was just shocked. I mean, this was a world-class production. It was so beautiful, incredible cast. But I realized too, Italian or not, there's something about the setting of it that seems a bit severe to people. I think, you know, they want all these love duets and things, but that's not what that piece is. No, that's not. Right? It's not at all. And to me, I mean, the thing I love about that piece the most is all the music of the fairies that take you into that magical realm and Oberon and the fact that Puck is a non-singing character and Titania. I mean, all of those things are so enchanting. And then when you get the mortals, I mean, the you know, mechanicals are really funny and and really playful. And then, of course, the lovers are always bickering most of the time until all that gets resolved. But what a great score. I mean, it's just larger than life. But somehow it seems to me it's not a piece that people love that much, the general public. I think you're right. I think there's something about the piece that is, I think, a little hard for people to get into, which is why I personally think it would make an extraordinary opera cinema exploration. I think you could do such amazing things with that. I mean, I also think you can make an incredible, beautiful production with it. But since we're in this world right now of operas as digital films, there's something about Britain's Midsummer Night's Dream that just feels like it's large and yet incredibly intimate, which I think would blend itself so well to digital. So that's one of the things that's definitely on my list. I've also always wanted to do The Break's Progress. Nice. And I really love that piece. I just think it's extraordinary. So yeah, I mean, yeah, there's tons of pieces, but I did, I got to direct my first bohème just sort of a year and a half ago for Calgary Opera. And, you know, I know bohème is one of those tried and trues and everyone does it and everyone knows how it goes. But there's also something about bohème. You know, I would be so happy to do another bohème. I just think there is something so beautiful and so kind of on point about the way the music and the characters combine. Because, I mean, you have to be basically dead not to weep at the end when he screams for Mimi. And, uh, you know, that sort of thing, I just love helping to tell that story and setting that story up. For sure. I mean, if I had 10 bohems coming up in the next 10 years or something, I wouldn't complain about that at all myself. It's such a great thing. And for me, like the Mozart da Pontes too, I would be happy to spend the rest of my life working on those because, you know, one discovers something new all the time. Yeah. It's all about the cast you assemble and the director and their vision of it. I mean, these pieces are endlessly transforming with the energy you have in the room and the people who make up the components of that. So for sure. And what do you think moving forward? This is a conversation I've had with many, many people. What do you think the future of opera looks like post-COVID? I mean, once people are vaccinated and feeling comfortable to get back into the theater and companies start producing again, What do you think we've learned from this past year and how might things change? What do you imagine could happen? Well, I mean, I think there's some business things that I think will change. You know, some of those older approaches to how we hire or produce certain pieces or even deal with just the organization of the production. I think some of that will have changed because this year has been very, like I said, very hard on many arts organizations because it was a big blow. You know, I, I know quite a few arts organizations where their major fundraising event had to get canceled or, you know, they were just about to open only their second show of the season 
and you're maybe already in rehearsal for their third and had to close both of those. And, you know, just financially, those are big concerns. So I think there will be maybe a different approach from a business standpoint about how we produce opera. I also think that we have also discovered that there is a component of opera that lends itself very well to becoming digital and to digital storytelling. And that in actuality, for some of our audiences, that opens up a level of accessibility that is incredibly important, I think, for us to keep trying to do. You know, I mean, we want to make opera accessible. And whether that's because it's too hard for people to just get to the opera, or if it's because, you know, maybe they have just concerns about how loud things are, being around too many people, things like digital productions actually allow them to become part of our community while working within the restraints of who they are. So I do think that digital components are definitely going to be here to stay. I do hope we're back to doing live theater, though, because there is something so magical about the sort of exchange between the performers and the audience and that, you know, silent agreement that everybody makes when they're like, oh, yeah, no, I know you're Pavarotti, but sure, we can pretend you're not Pavarotti for the next three hours. We'll all believe that lie. Sure. You know, there's something magical about that sort of agreed upon lie that happens between the audience members and the cast and the musicians that I really I miss. So from a very selfish point of view, I'm really looking forward to that. But I definitely think digital is here to stay. It's here to stay. Yeah, I would agree with that too. But as you say, there is something magical and it's true. It's just being physically present in that when you hear a voice, the sensation of sound mm -hmm. even and everything that one, one experiences when they're in the same room. I think you can't really replicate that. Not to say that other mediums are not also incredibly powerful, but there's nothing quite like what opera is like live. Yeah. So. Well, Brenna, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And any parting words for our audience? I would just say I really hope that everyone enjoys the Carmen. I'm so thrilled to be back at VO, my home company where I learned so much. So I'm really, really excited to come. And I really hope everyone enjoys our reworking of Carmen. Thanks. We can't wait for you to be here. And I'm so looking forward to this journey into what you're going to create visually and the storytelling and all of that and to working with our young singers. So I'll see you very soon. Sounds good. Don't forget to subscribe to Vancouver Opera's digital season to see Carmen up close and personal at digital.vancouveropera.ca on Saturday, May 1st. On our next podcast, coming Wednesday, May 5th, we'll get a special glimpse from the filmmaker's perspective of what it takes to bring opera from the stage to the screen. We'll be speaking with Mike Southworth, president of Collide Entertainment, who is responsible for the camera work and videography behind Vancouver Opera's 2020-2021 digital season productions. In addition to his work on VO season, he is also highly in demand for his talents as an editor, sound designer, composer, sound recordist, camera operator, and director. We'd love to hear from you if you have any feedback or suggestions for upcoming guests. You can reach us via email at online at vancouveropera.ca. And don't forget to check out this episode's special features on our website at vancouveropera.ca forward slash offstage. This has been Vancouver Opera Offstage. I'm your host, Les Dalla. As always, you can keep up to date with Vancouver Opera at vancouveropera.ca, where you can sign up for our e-newsletter, or follow us on social media. 
Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.